Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together today. We thank you that you have truth that can steady our minds and renew our hearts and give us hope in the midst of much fear and anxiety and loneliness and all of the different things that we may be struggling with right now. Lord, we pray for those uh, in our immediate area who are struggling with not having their needs met, their daily basic needs met. We pray for our government officials who are supposed to be helping them that the things that they need would be expedited, that uh, instead of people pointing fingers at one another and uh, making excuses for why people are not getting what they need, that they will do their jobs well and diligently and people's needs will be met. Lord, we pray for those who are uh, talking about all the things that are going on, that they would present facts and not fear, that they would work towards solutions instead of uh, trying to score points. Lord, we pray for uh, our churches specifically, Lord, with the opportunity that we have to be able to gather and the importance of that and the fact that so many people see that as an optional part of what it means to be a Christian or to follow any sort of a faith. Some have even said that to argue for a faith that advocates for risk, how could any faith actually ask for that? But if we look at the history of your church in the last several thousand years, we see that that has been true for much of the church's history. And the reason that we think it's not part of our history now is because to some extent, perhaps we have forgotten what it truly means to follow you. Following you involves risk, not carelessness, not doing things to deliberately harm another person, but not, neither fear nor concern for ourselves above the opportunity to show love to others, not uh, a desire to prevent death at all costs such that we are paralyzed and unable to do the things that you have called us to do which boils down to this, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. Give us patience, give us wisdom, give us diligence in this task, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 17 and go through the end of the chapter. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus." That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We will look at verses 17 through 32 of chapter 4 today, but I want you to recognize that this section extends from chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 5, verse 21. Paul's opening comments are in verses 17 through 24, where he talks about this contrast between the old and the new. And then he's going to have a series of therefores. Verse 25, therefore, a number of contrasts between old and new. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, as beloved children, contrast between the old way of life, the new way of life, organized around this idea of being in God, having new life, loving God, being loved by God. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, another therefore, therefore do not be partakers with them, which introduces a section of contrast between darkness and light from verses 7 through 14 and between being awake and being asleep. And then verses 15 through 21 of chapter 5 introduces a contrast between wisdom and foolishness uh, which is explained in more detail in contrast in the context of being controlled by the Spirit instead of other things and God's Word richly living in us to spill forth in our interactions with those around us. We're going to deal with those other three therefores next week, but for today, chapter 4, starting in verse 17. How many of you heard have heard the statement, that's not who I am anymore. Maybe you've never said it. Maybe no one you know personally has ever said it, but we, we hear it in the context of someone who was uh, maybe had problems in their life in the past, someone who lived, perhaps com committed some crimes in their past, and people are doubting whether they are really and truly changed. And in protest, they might say something like that statement, well, that's not who I am anymore. And we tend to be suspicious of those kind of statements, right? Because we know the reality is that many times people profess to change, but don't really. They profess to change for a variety of reasons. Because it will get them a job. Because it will allow them to move forward in a relationship. Because it will keep them out of trouble. There's a number of self-serving reasons why someone might say, I'm not that way anymore. Yeah, maybe I used to be, but I'm not that way anymore. The reality is that Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, argue that for the Christian, we should be able to truly say, that's not who I am anymore, and our lives should bear that out. There's a sharp contrast in verses 17 through 19 with the beginning of chapter 4, but there's also a close parallel between Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 and Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Notice the similarity of the statements that Paul makes in here in chapter 4 that are like the ones he made in chapter 2. Don't walk as the Gentiles walked in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Well, chapter 2, verse 2 said, You formerly walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 
you lived a life that was characterized by opposition to God, being under God's wrath. Both things are being said, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 18. And it was borne out in their manner of life, chapter 4, verse 19. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Chapter 2, verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's how the Gentiles used to live. That's how the Ephesians used to live. Paul says, I affirm that you walk no longer this way. Is it something that they actually no longer do? Is he saying, stop living this way, start living a different way? Is it something that has already taken place? I think if we look at the parallel passage in the book of Colossians, Colossians 3, 5 through 10, we see that this is both a one-time event and an ongoing process. How can it be both? From the perspective of God's work in our lives, we are no longer what we used to be. Christ has forgiven us in God's sight. Christ's payment has secured for us a position of righteousness before him. But in our practical everyday experience, there is the reality that we are working to make the way that we think and act and want and speak and live to line up with the reality of how God sees us in Christ. And so that's why I say that it is both a one-time thing and an ongoing process. The ongoing process, I think, is what Paul is mainly focused on here in Ephesians chapter 4. Why does he argue that they should live differently? Verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. In what way? According to human wisdom, according to opposition to God. Here's how I demonstrated Christ to you. Here's the mystery that I explained to you. That refers back to chapter 3. He pauses in verse 21 and says, if indeed you have heard him. Paul is not necessarily saying, doubt that you have come to trust in Christ, but he is saying, like he says in a number of other places in his letters, you need to examine your heart. Have you actually heard of Christ, heard him, and been taught in him because truth is in him? There's so much argument right now about what is true, about the crisis that we are going through, who we should trust, uh, even the way that statistics are being presented, because the way that you present statistics can paint a completely different picture of a particular situation or circumstance. The Bible is not like that. The Bible is truth. Truth is in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not multiple ways of interpreting that. There is one way to God, and it is through Jesus. And Paul is saying, have you heard of him? Have you been taught in him? Are you believing the truth that is in Jesus? Because if you're trusting in anything else for hope and for help and for your confidence of how you stand before God and what's going to happen when you die and do you have a relationship with him, if it is based on going to church, trying to be nice to other people, not breaking any significant laws, Whatever your particular standard of righteousness is, and if it is based on any of those things, instead of being connected with Jesus and who he is, 
Paul would say, pause right here. Don't start thinking about how your life should be different because then all you're going to do is turn over a new leaf and be right back to where you started in a few weeks or months or years because you cannot live the life of God when you are still dead in your sin. Go back and read chapter 2. You were dead in your sin apart from Christ. You need to turn and trust in him. And so if you are listening to this and you say, I don't know if I really know Jesus in the way that you're talking about. Don't keep reading chapter 4. Go back to chapter 2 and realize that Jesus is the only way, that you are dead in your sin, that you need his help. Turn to him and plead for him to rescue you from sin. But if you have experienced that new life that is in Christ, if you have been taught in him, what's supposed to be going on in your life? You lay aside the old self. Now, when we say the old self, some people have taken this in a way that makes it seem like the old self is just bad habits. I put off bad habits. I put on good habits. But the old self is more complicated than that. Paul talks of the struggle with the old self in Romans chapter 7. He says, even though I want to do the thing that I know I'm supposed to do, sometimes I find myself still going back and sinning in a way I was not supposed to do. Who will deliver me from this? I need Jesus' help to be freed from this ongoing struggle between what I know I ought to do and the entirety of my person that was bent towards sinning. Remember I talked a few, a few moments ago about this idea that there's a one-time event and an ongoing process. The one-time event is you've been declared righteous in Christ. Justification, a variety of terms to describe that. Ephesians 1 talks about it in detail. But we need to progressively be going through a process by which we cast off the old way of life and put on the new way of life that matches who we are in connection with Jesus. What does that look like? It doesn't just look like I was doing this bad action and now I'm doing this good action. It's more thorough than that. It's more pervasive than that. It affects not just our outward actions, but also our thinking and our desires. We'll see illustrations of this as we go through the further part of the chapter, verses 25 through 32. But how do you know that it involves not just actions, but also desires and also thinking? Well, verse 22, the old self is corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Deceitful desires, strong desires that are deceitful, that lead you into sin. The old self is bent toward those. Those wrong desires need to be replaced. Does it involve the mind? Verse 23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. By what? The common answer, and I think it's true, is by the word of God, you are renewed in the spirit of your mind by considering what God has said, meditating on it, seeking to apply it to your life. Your mind is renewed. By these things in connection with the way that we actually act in life, verse 24, you put on the new self. This new self has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And I think other passages would argue it is being created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's more than just, I put off dirty clothes and I put on clean clothes. That's the way sometimes people have described or understood this passage. It's more than that because... When you change your clothes, you're not changing anything about the inward part of you, right? You're not changing anything about how you feel, what you think, what you believe, what you want. But 
putting off the old self and putting on the new self involves transformation in all those areas. So let's look at some specifics that Paul lays out for us of the contrast between the old life and the new life. Verse 25, therefore, this begins the first of these four sections where he's going to illustrate, give examples of, give commands about this walking in the new life. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Put off, put on. What do you put off? Falsehood. Probably Paul has in mind this idea of one of the Ten Commandments, which most people take as don't lie, but it's actually don't bear false witness against your neighbor. It, it has more in common with the idea of slander, gossip, those sorts of ideas than it does with simply saying something that's not true. The Israelites were commanded not to bear false witness, not to slander their neighbor. Perhaps the one of the most terrible examples of this is when Ahab hired people to accuse Naboth of blasphemy against God because he wanted his vineyard. Or when the Jewish people in the Gospels, uh, described in the Gospels, did the same thing. False witnesses were hired to accuse Jesus of blasphemy against God because they wanted to see him dead. The same thing happened in the case of Stephen in the book of Acts. False witness was produced. People were hired to say lies about Stephen so that they could feel all right with stoning him for blasphemy, despite the fact that everything he said was true. We are to lay aside the sort of falsehood that would lead us to speak lies about our neighbor. And in contrast, Paul says, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. The reason is sourced back in all the things he's been saying in the book, but we saw it especially last week in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. You've been made one in Christ, and even going further back to chapter 2, Jews and Gentiles have been made one in Christ. So if I attack someone near me by lying about him, then I am not only attacking that person, and it has no consequences whatsoever for me, but I am harming this thing of which I am a part. Now, notice that Paul's context is not speaking generally about in society. This doesn't mean that we're free to slander people outside the church. I'm just pointing out the fact that he's focused on what's going on inside the church in this specific verse. Because we're not members of one another with everyone in the whole world, we are members of every other person who's a part of the church that God has established. To lie against those in the church is to attack the church itself, of which we are a part. It's as though one of your hands attacked the other hand, and one of your feet started kicking another of your feet. Uh, the body attacking itself is completely opposite to what God has designed it to be, and it completely undermines what God is doing, this work of building us all together. Verse 26, moving on. Be angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. This one is less clear because he doesn't specifically say, put off this thing. But I think the put off comes in the later part. The put off is, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't let the sun go down on your anger probably has to do with dealing with problems promptly so they don't turn into bitterness. Bitterness is clearly a sin. We should put it off. 
don't give a, give the devil an opportunity uh, might or might not be connected with this idea of the person who sort of uh, gets so overcome with rage that they explode. And in that, Satan has had an opportunity and has won because the anger is no longer about anything valid. It's simply an opportunity to vent. Sometimes people will say that, even Christians, they'll say, well, I just needed a, an opportunity to vent. The idea of venting is not a biblical idea. We're not supposed to vent. We're supposed to take our cares to God. We're not supposed to vent. We're supposed to use the energy of anger to deal with a particular problem. And so if you find yourself venting or you find yourself hanging on to anger such that it turns into bitterness, you need to put those things off. Well, the, why then does he say put off the very thing that you're supposed to do? Why does he say to do the thing you're supposed to put off? Because not all anger is sin. Perhaps the best example of this is Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Why was it okay for Jesus to cleanse the temple and to express anger? Because what he was angry about was a violation of God's character and of God's commands. The temple was supposed to be, of all places, an opportunity for God's people to show their devotion to God their fulfillment of the most basic of commands to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when people in the temple saw it as an opportunity to cheat those who had traveled from far away by playing with exchange rates and uh, taking advantage of them, perhaps because they didn't speak the local language particularly well, Jesus was rightfully enraged and said, you have taken a house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. That's an appropriate sort of anger. When someone says, I value life. I want to see people live. And then they turn around and say, but I really support abortion. I want to see babies die. And that's an essential aspect to what needs to go on in our society. That should stir us up because that is an attack on the most fundamental of things, the the life that God has given to us, which we should value and should uphold and should fight for. And we should push back against a kind of hypocrisy that would say, yeah, I want to see people live, so I'm going to take every precaution I, I can. I'm going to stay home. But yeah, abortion is essential. Why not? We need to see babies die. That should stir us up. We should also be stirred up when we see people taking advantage of those in need. It's not a political party kind of thing. This is just a basic fact. If someone says, I'm going to do this for this group of people, and then they don't fulfill their promises, and they take advantage of those people, that should stir us up too. We should have a concern for life. We should have a concern for justice in our society. And when I say justice, I don't mean that everybody has exactly the same amount of things in their possessions. I mean that people are treated fairly and not uh, taken advantage of and all those sorts of things. Be angry. But don't be angry about things that are primarily frustrations for you. This is not an excuse for road rage. Because what are you really angry about when you experience road rage? You're angry that you're not getting where you want to go as quickly as you would like to get there. That really has little or nothing to do with something that God cares about and everything to do with something that you selfishly care about. 
and I've been there, and I've been frustrated, and I've had to ask God's forgiveness for that. When we say be angry, it is about things that really matter, about things that are perversions of justice and a lack of concern for life, not a perceived lack of concern for life, but an actual lack of concern for life. Those are the sorts of things that we ought to get stirred up about. Those are the sort of things that we ought to get angry about. Those are the things that we ought to fight for. But we ought to do it in a way that doesn't lead to bitterness and doesn't lead to an uncontrolled explosion of anger. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so he will have something to share with one who has need. Notice the total transformation that is described in this verse. Sometimes we just think, okay, the thief stopped stealing and now he's working, so that's good enough. But that's not where the verse stops, is it? It says, working, performing with his own hands what is good so he can share with the one who has need. The thief has not stopped being a thief until his thoughts recognize that stealing is sin until his thoughts recognize that God has commanded him to love his neighbor, and until his actions are no longer just a, I don't do the bad thing anymore, and now I'm doing a good thing, but I'm doing a good thing that actually demonstrates love for God and neighbor, specifically of his neighbor in this case. If the thief just stops stealing, we've cut the process short. If the thief just starts working, we've cut the process short. If the thief stops stealing, starts working, and starts giving, we see that the transformation is well on its way. And this is true about any of the sins, the putting off, putting on that we see in this section. It's not enough just to say, I've stopped doing the bad thing. I've started doing another good thing that's not really the opposite of the bad thing that I was doing. We have not begun to arrive. None of us have arrived, but we've not begun to arrive until we are actually fulfilling this idea of loving God and our neighbor as ourself. And that's what this verse demonstrates. And that's the sort of complete transformation of thoughts and of desires and of actions. I talked about the thoughts. I talked about the actions. What about the desires? In this verse, we see a transformation of desires from greed. What can I get, even if it means violating things that God has laid out, like boundaries that God has set? Greed. Instead of being ruled by greed, now this person is being controlled by love. How can I serve those around me? How can I minister to those around me? How can I see what I have as an opportunity to serve God and others? That's the kind of transformation that Paul is after when he says, put off the old man, put on the new man. Here's what it looks like. We come to verse 29, which is not disconnected from verse 25. <clears throat> he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so it'll give grace to those who hear. It's closely connected to verse 25. Put off slander, speak truth to one another. Put off here unwholesome words, things which attack and tear down and harm people, and instead say things that edify. How does this contribute to the work that God is doing in the church? The work that God is doing in the church is to bring Jews and Gentiles together, chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, to build them into a holy temple in the Lord. Chapter 4 highlighted the fact that we have all been placed together into this one body. And then chapter 4, verse 15 said, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. God wants all people in the church to grow toward maturity, and we're supposed to be contributing to that process. 
What does that mean then? It means we need to think before we speak. Is this something that helps this person grow closer to God or not? Sometimes that has to do with the fact that we talk about trivialities far more readily than we talk about things that are really important. I'm not saying it's wrong to talk about the weather, sports, what you're going to have for lunch, what you did this week, but if that's all we ever talk about, we're like the thief, right? We're not doing a bad thing, but we're also not doing the positive good that God has called us to do. So are you actively seeking to build people up with what you say? We need to think about our words before we speak them and work toward this goal of speaking truth so that people grow closer to God as the church collectively reaches maturity in Christ. Verse 30 seems to be in isolation because there doesn't seem to be a put on. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. But this, I think, sort of summarizes or ties into all of the things that Paul is saying. Sometimes when we see something like, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, we immediately say, let's turn to all these other passages and try to figure out what it means. But we should look at this in context. When it says, don't grieve the Spirit of God, we ought to look in Ephesians and say, what is it that the Spirit is doing? Well, he says we were sealed for the day of redemption. We saw that back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. So if the Holy Spirit is a seal, a down payment, an expectation of the rest of the promises of our salvation, and Paul says the reason we shouldn't grieve him is because of that fact, then what does it mean to grieve him? I think in context it means to do things which work against the thing that he's trying to accomplish in the church. When we sow disunity, we grieve the Spirit of God. When we sin in the ways that Paul says we ought to put off sinning here in chapter 4, 17 through 32, and he's going to outline more of them in chapter 5, when we sin in those ways, we grieve the Spirit of God because we are attacking the unity of his church, and we belong to him, we're part of this with him, and if we're working against the very thing that he guarantees for us, our salvation, our fellowship, our unity, our connection with all those that God is doing this work in, he is grieved. Not in a, I'm going to go sit over here and cry kind of way, which is the sort of grief that we might express, but a grief that is a disconnect between what ought to be and what is. If we are living in a way that undermines the unity of the church that the Spirit is building together, we ought to be grieved, and we ought to stop grieving him and we ought to remember what the work that he's doing in us is. Now we come to the last two verses. You're probably more familiar with them, and we tend to take them in isolation as well, I think. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Well, I think this is describing the fundamental way that people live apart from Christ. They are driven by malice. They would not admit it. Many of them would say, I'm a good person. I try to do good things to people around me. Have you ever experienced that feeling deep down when you're so frustrated with someone or so jealous of someone or so whatever by someone that you're just like, I just hope to get what's coming to them. You say no one, no one feels that way. No one admits that they feel that way, but that is our basic disposition apart from Christ. Why? 
Because Paul says we have to put those things off. He wouldn't say we have to put them off if they didn't exist at all in our hearts apart from Christ. What sort of things? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, summed up as all malice. Wanting to do harm to someone by what we say, by the way that we use our anger, by the actions that we express, by the words that we use, that has to be put off. What should we put on? Verse 32, be kind to one another. Be kind is not be nice. Be nice is like, what's the least I can do and get away with people thinking well of me? Well, be a nice person. We're not supposed to be nice people. We're supposed to be kind people. Kindness is what we do when no one is watching, when we're not going to get any applause, when we are showing love to those around us. Tender-hearted. Do you care about the people around you? Not do you have the appearance of caring about the people around you, it's the difference between, do I buy groceries for my neighbor if he needs them, or do I say, hey, if you buy this thing that makes me money, like a box of cereal, then I will match your donation by giving 1% of it to this particular charitable cause. One has the appearance of caring about people. The other is an actual expression of caring for people. Are you tender-hearted? Do you genuinely have compassion and care and concern for people? Do you forgive people? That's a hard one because it's in direct opposition to this basic thing in the deep down in our souls that says when someone has done me wrong, I am going to they're going to get what's coming to them, right? Verse 31, all malice. Supposed to put that off, right? Forgiving each other. Forgiving is not forgetting. Some people say that it is, but God can't forget. He chooses not to remember our sin against us, and that's different than forgetting or acting like it never happened. I'm not going to get into the whole thing of whether forgiveness is something that has to be asked for before it can be granted. I think we should always be ready to forgive, but I think the reality is we can't forgive until the person asks. That being said, we ought to be forgiving each other, not looking for ways to get even with each other, not looking for ways to get back at each other. And the underlying motivation is because look at what Jesus did for you. How can I live in malice and hatred and wanting harm to other people when I consider what Jesus has done for me? I didn't deserve any of that. I have benefited greatly from that. I will continue to be extraordinarily blessed by my connection with Jesus Christ that is only possible because while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And when I look at it from that perspective, as much as there is humanly maybe a part of me that says, if someone does me wrong, they're going to get it, what's coming to them, that's at odds with what it means to really know and be in Christ and follow after him. Are you still the person you used to be? If you are, it might be a sign that you don't yet know Christ. If you have professed faith in Christ and you genuinely believe the right things about Christ and you're still basically the same person that you used to be, it could also be a sign of severe spiritual immaturity. If you find that you are not really the person that you used to be, don't think that you've arrived. Don't start to pat yourself on the back because in that moment of pride, we tend to be liable to fall. Are you who you used to be? That's not who I am anymore. We need to live out in our daily experience the transforming process that God is putting us through of putting off 
old ways of thinking and desiring and acting and putting on new ways of thinking and desiring and acting, not because those are different things. They're all connected. We're one person, and those are all parts of who we are that we divide up so we can understand them better. Essentially, Paul's saying the same thing he said in the first half of chapter 4. God wants you to grow up in Christ so that you look like Christ, so that you live out Christ to those around you. Participate in that process, actively work toward that process, recognizing that it is God's power that enables it, the Spirit who sustains you as you work out God the Father's plan in the transformation he is accomplishing in your life.